It's good to be back here with you this morning. Last Sunday was the first in a long time that I haven't been here at Church of the Valley, and I missed you very much. Um, on the plus side, I did get to spend a week in Mammoth Lakes with my family, and that was pretty great. But things, I have to tell you, were a little weird there. I think we have a photo uh, of, a, um, of a lake. So we have a photo of a lake, and you can see there's snow at the bottom corner, and then there's probably dirt along that stretch, and then there's snow around, and it would alternate dirt and snow and sand all the way around this lake. It was a crazy thing to have these things coexisting, and we hiked around part of it. Karen was able to test her wrist on the, the slippery snow. It was great. Um, I have a, didn't include it today, but I have a picture of myself lying on the beach on a log, enjoying a beautiful sunny July day with a snowdrift on each side of me. And there's just this weird combination of things going on there. And I was thinking about the book of Jonah and the kind of jarring things that happen in this book. Uh, it's four short chapters, which is why Tim has trouble finding it, and maybe you would too. But it describes a prophet who is reluctant at best and vindictive at worst. Um, this isn't your standard Bible hero. Um, in today's passage, what we're calling our wrong way prophet from this passage, now the whole thing is the missionary who can't even, and this week it's the wrong way prophet. He clearly hears instructions from God, and then he ignores them to run in the opposite direction. And uh, I have to tell you, I used to be surprised when my coworkers and I would be talking about faith, and it came up multiple times. Somebody would say, if I ever saw a miracle, I would be the most faithful believer ever. And honestly, growing up church, familiar with scripture, this puzzled me because that's not the impression I've gotten. And eventually, my answer was, hey, let me tell you some stories from the Old Testament that directly contradict that. That people repeatedly saw something amazing happen. They experienced delivery of an amazing kind, and they were so quick to forget or ignore. You and I have this tendency as well. That's not just a Hebrew Scriptures thing. If you think... You don't have the ability to experience God's intervention, his preservation, his blessing, and walk away and forget, walk away and begin to ignore, walk away and come up with an alternate explanation over time, something that God used us to move in us, well, that's really how we are whether we want to admit it or not. Within the church, I more often hear people say, if God just spoke clearly to me, I would follow him with all my might. Okay, well, Jonah's here to cast a little shade on that hyper-optimistic point of view as well. I'm sorry to say it, but God has always spoken really clearly. But you and I have the capacity to forget, to intentionally misunderstand, or even, like Jonah, to flee from exactly what we know he's saying. 
I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to reread the passage, and as you know, it's short, and I'm, I'm going to do it in the ESV. Um, so Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. You can follow along in the NIV if that's what you've got open. That's fine. There are tiny differences in the language. Both translations are good. They're just little differences in language. Now the word of the Lord, it says, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And let me just pause here one more time to pray. God, you, you spoke so clearly to Jonah. And what he didn't like was what you said. Would you speak to us this morning through your word? And whether we like it or not, would you help us to hear? And would you grow in us a desire to do what you're asking us to? In Christ's name, I pray that. Amen. Okay, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Who is this Jonah? To be quite honest, we don't really know. Uh, we have this tiny shred of information uh, other than what's in this book, because the only other Old Testament book that mentions his name is Second Kings. In chapter 14, if this guy is the same prophet, it means we can place him in the 8th century BCE, before the Common Era or before the Christian Era, depending on how acquiescent to Christ's power in history you want to be. Uh, that's during the reign of Jeroboam II, king of Israel. Here's what, what that short passage says. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, there will not be a test on any of these names, okay? Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that's two Jeroboams already in this passage, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. Okay, in this period, the people of Israel, they're one people, but they've split into two nations. Judah has two tribes, and they're the ones who are spiritually as physically fit as it gets. Sometimes they follow God, is what I mean by that. The northern kingdom, they don't have a single shining moment, really. And what's interesting about this passage is it's talking about a guy who's an evil king, and yet... Apparently, Jonah is able to provide a prophecy and this, this king is able to fulfill it where Israel, the nation's borders expand. Evil guy got a good result. Interesting. Uh, the bad news is that subsequently both Israel and Judah are going to face violent persecution and eventually... Uh, they're going to be overrun by Assyria, 
the northern kingdom goes first, and they're just destroyed. Uh, Judah holds out for some time longer. And the interesting thing about Assyria is that its capital eventually was Nineveh. That's why I'm bothering to mention this. This is an interesting set of people, and it's interesting that a guy named Jonah, who was expanding Israel's border, would be called then to talk to these people. What kind of people were those Ninevites? I couldn't find anything specific to that city, but here are some examples of boasting from Assyrian, uh, an Assyrian king. With their blood, he says, I dyed the mountain red like wool, the blood of the rest of them in ravines and torrents down the mountain which swallowed them. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built a tower of them before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Rescue mission from God to people like that. But wait, there's more. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. And once again, you say, Mike, I came to church today hoping to get a little encouragement, maybe a word of blessing. Hey, fought any Assyrians today? No. Okay, great. We're maybe doing better than you thought you were. This, though, is the kind of people that God is telling Jonah to go preach to. People who are reveling in their brutality. People who aren't kind of okay. They're bad. So why go into this detail? Because God is speaking directly to a prophet, and the prophet doesn't go the way God said. He goes the other way. There's a reason for it. Jonah's not just being petulant. Jonah's got an idea of what should go on, and it's not lining up with what God is saying. Someone who's supposed to be God's emissary says, no, I don't think so. So let's go back to the text. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The part I want to look at here is the word of the Lord came. This is what, what Alan Dundas would have called fixed phrase folklore. In the Hebrew scriptures, when you find this phrase, it's God sending a specific message to somebody, almost always someone who's a designated prophet. It's a phrase repeated 105 times in the Hebrew scriptures. So I'm going to give you a few of the first mentions. Just whip through this. Genesis 15.1, it's to Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Shortly thereafter, in Genesis 15, verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. God is speaking in those passages to Abram, who he's going to lead to follow a nation. And what does Abram do? He obeys. He listens to God's word, and then he does what God says, albeit with a few adventures here and there in his obedience. Uh, later, 1 Samuel 15.10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. 
Second Samuel 7, 4, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, another prophet, 2 Samuel 24, 11, and when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, he delivers the message. Uh, you go 105 times, that's crazy. Well, the phrase appears 24 times in Jeremiah and 50 times in Ezekiel. These are major prophets, and they've got major difficult words to deliver to the people that they're delivering them to. And God is saying, I've got another message for you. I've got another message for you. I've got another message. What do we know the people of those nations did in response? They didn't do what he said. The prophet was faithful to deliver the word, and occasionally there was some obedience but it didn't last long. So what's the big deal? I think we got to remember that God has something to say to people. He's not a God who just set things up and then walked away and occasionally glances back. He's not watching us like we're some ant farm. He's a God who has a recurring interaction with people on the earth who clearly is communicating a plan for the well-being of the people on the earth. And this, this includes people you wouldn't expect, like the people from Nineveh. So this is why we value Scripture so highly at Church of the Valley, is that God has something to say to us, and God's Word is how we hear it. As Jonah will show us, as the bell has described, hearing clearly isn't enough. What was the word of God to Jonah? He said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. All right, that's a, a harsh, harsh language, their evil has come up before me. I was trying to figure out how to, how to make it gradual, and I was thinking about the drive to and from Mammoth. We drove through some beautiful countryside, caldera that just went on for miles and miles and miles. Lots of rain this year, lots of stuff still melting off the mountains, very green. And what we saw were cows, and we said, if you're a cow, these are the places to live. The grass was long, there was water that was available, they looked happy, they looked chill. Because normally my picture is I-5, going through Koalinga, right? And you smell the cows before you see the poor things, right? And this is my picture of what is happening in God's experience, is there's a stench coming up. Things are not running the way that they ought to be on earth. And his first response isn't a flood, firestorms, lightning. His first response is, I'm going to go to one of my people and I'm going to have them deliver a message saying there's a problem. God has something to say to people. So the stench of the vicious people is risen to God and he's going to respond. Uh, I think we get to remember that God knows the evil that people do. 
People don't get away with stuff, and God doesn't know. All the way back in Genesis, God seeks out the man and woman who had broken the one rule. You had one job, people. They broke the one rule that existed. And he seeks them out, looking to reestablish some kind of relationship, even in the midst of their rebellion and shame. Not long after that, uh, he tells Cain, who has murdered his brother Abel, uh, something, Genesis 4.10, the Lord says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The God of the Bible is a God who cares deeply about justice and injustice. And so Nineveh being apparently a really unjust city and a really unjust kingdom gets his attention. We can look around and say, how can God allow such horrible things to occur as what we see and hear about? And my simple answer is to destroy the kind of awfulness that we see around us would require the destruction of every one of us. Because you and I interact with God's creation in a way that brings death. We have our own stench. You and I contribute to the misery of the world, whether we can admit that to ourselves or anyone else or not. Each one of us can be justly condemned for bringing sin into the world. It can be a little sin. It can be Nineveh-scale sin, but it all deserves condemnation. Even the good people don't do it right, and Jonah is here to show us. He's supposed to be a model of the kind of person who hears from this righteous, just God and delivers the message, and his response is not to do that. What does Jonah do instead? Uh, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee, from Tarsh, uh, flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went the other way. My question to you is, do you think you wouldn't have? The prophet Isaiah says something a little different. He says uh, in chapter 53, verse 6, just looking at the beginning, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Isaiah is talking about how there's something inside us that just does not want to do what God thinks is best. There's some shred of rebellion, and it shows itself in ways that sometimes look like obedience, sometimes open rebellion, and yet we all desire our own way. So what did Jonah hope to accomplish? He surely knew that God uh, is present everywhere, but that's apparently what he was trying to do. The psalmist says, in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, Jonah, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And I don't know about you, but I take a little confidence in the fact that I can run from God, but I can't hide. And you can run from God, and I bet you have, but you can't hide from him. And it turns out that's a good thing. You and I can run from God, but he pursues. 
Now, where did Jonah run? He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. All right, most of us don't have a map of the ancient Near East in our heads, so let me put this in terms that might help. So you are the Jonah of Santa Clara. Let's just picture this in our minds for a moment. God just told you, go to Denver. Okay, Denver, that's, you know, some direction from here. Uh, instead, you head out to, to maybe the port of Oakland and you get on a ship headed for Anchorage in Alaska. Okay, this, this is the level of obedience to God's word that our friend Jonah is displaying. We're actually not sure of the location of Tarshish at this point. Oddly enough, records from the 8th century BCE are spotty at best. But it's clearly a port town, and in other parts of Scripture, there is at least one city that's indicated it's a source of precious metals, and so there's trade going on with it. So some scholars believe it's a port in Spain, and basically what the writer is saying is, the furthest known point in the whole universe that he could get to was what Jonah bought a ticket for. Does that make sense? Despite doing the opposite of what God said, he went down to Joppa, and guess what? He found a ship going to Tarshish. What an amazing coincidence! God told him to do one thing, but when he went down to the port, he found a ship that got him to the thing that he wanted to do. You know, maybe that was God's intervention. God provided the ship to the ends of the earth. He was giving him a chance not to do what he'd been called to do, right? Am I the only one who's ever thought this way? Running the opposite direction and painting it with some kind of providential paste that's supposed to make it sound to me and maybe to you like it was actually God's plan all along. Tim's, Tim's following along with me, so we can have a good talk later. Uh, even as we disobey God's word, we can think that we're in his will. which is one of the ways that we wreck ourselves the most. It doesn't say in the text that this is how Jonah felt, okay? But I hear examples of this so often that it's something this text brings to light. Let me give you an example. A man at a church where I was, he inherited some property, but unfortunately his deadbeat brother co-inherited the property. And in their dealings, the brother was doing all kinds of uh, unwise, unethical, unkind things. And what happened was this man that I knew became so angry about the injustice of what his brother was doing that he became a visibly angrier and angrier man in all his dealings. That anger about the injustice that his brother was doing was eating him up, and I could not convince him for the longest time that he even had to contemplate forgiving his brother, not for his brother's sake, but because he was taking out his anger on his own family. Until he saw that, 
he was able to convince himself that what he was doing was a godly thing in protecting his family, in taking care of what God had given him. And so he repeated this over and over to himself in order to justify this level of hostility that didn't do him or his family any good. Back to verse 3. So he paid the fare and went down into it, that's the boat, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Boy, if you've had any exposure to the Jonah story, you know where it goes from here, so you're not, you know, you're not fooled, right? That's not where the trip is going to end up. So I think it's interesting to pause for a moment and say, Jonah, what's, what's his mindset? I've got this. I can pay the fare. I've got it in my pocket. I don't have to clear this with God. I've got the wherewithal to make my plan happen. Hey, God provided the ship. I've got the money. This is all the way it's supposed to work out. <laughs> Jonah has more fare to pay if you know more of the story, but he doesn't know that yet. And I want to cheat ahead for just a moment, uh, not, not to tell really any more of the story, but to tell you that God still had a plan for Jonah to serve in the capacity that God intended. He doesn't give him a new ministry to Tarshish. What he does is repeats the original call. So in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. We've jumped over a bunch of narrative in between. Lots of stuff happened. What is God ready to do once he's got Jonah's attention again? Once he's got Jonah in a place where he's willing to, ex some extent, be obedient? He says, yeah, I've still, got, I've still got a message for you to deliver to those people. And I want to tell you that whatever you did yesterday, today is the day to answer God's call. So if you've been stuck knowing what God has told you to do, but unwilling to do it, or unwilling to realize that you've not been doing it, today's the day. But how can I answer today? How can I have any confidence that I could answer tomorrow? Jonah's been called to deliver a message to some pretty horrible enemies, enemies of God and of God's people. So how can we be the people that God calls us to be? What can we learn from this situation? I don't think at this point in Jonah's story we can learn from him how to be God's people. That's not what the storyteller has told us so far. But in the New Testament, we find that God's radical intervention can result in a whole new kind of communication. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, like Jonah, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty in heaven before the word of the Lord came through the prophets, but now it comes by the Son. So how can we be the people God calls us to be? Paul talks about this maybe more specifically. Hebrews is explaining that where the word of God comes from now for those who are in Christ, for those who are to be in Christ. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 talks about what it's to be like once we're in that relationship. Verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was willing to go from majesty to Nineveh in a way that Jonah wasn't. Jesus was willing to go from perfection to a place where injustice reigns when Jonah wasn't. And the reality is that Jesus came from heaven to earth because you and I could never do what God needs us to do unless he were willing to do that. And therefore, verse 9 says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nineveh, Santa Clara, we are included in the plan of God by the communication of God, not through a Jonah who could never get the job done, but through God's only Son, second person of one God, who came to live among us and lived a life that we were completely unable to live in obedience that we've never experienced because we each follow our own rebellion, even if it just seems like a little to us. And so, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Paul's writing to people that he cares about in Philippi, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You get to serve better than Jonah ever could if Jesus changes your will so that you want to obey God in a way that Jonah will never want to obey God as we unfold this book further. Do everything without grumbling or arguing or fleeing to Tarshish. Oh, I'm sorry, I added that. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. The word of the Lord came and dwelt among us. The word of the Lord came to you and me because we had to have it in a way that we could experience that didn't require us to muster up our own obedience, our own desire to fulfill God's will for us. Oh, goodness gracious. 
And then I will be able to boast, Paul says, on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, Jew of Jews, is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was willing to go, in a sense, to Nineveh and risk his life for people like you and me, not because he had the best idea or because God spoke and he just responded, but because God met him, God spoke to him through Christ, who knocked him off his donkey onto his behind and gave him a new life, a new purpose, a new will. It gives me a lot of confidence that I don't have to manufacture my purpose in life because God not only has that for me, but he's also got the wherewithal to allow me to pursue it. Jonah's response to God's call to deliver a message to a vicious people was to run in the opposite direction. But Jesus' response to God's call was to come and to live among us, to come to us knowing that our sin was going to kill him, knowing that our sin was what he had to die for, to compensate for, to make us right before God for. And then he was raised from the dead. He was rightfully exalted, not only as creator, but savior. Jonah loved his country, and therefore he couldn't love his country's enemies. We are not called to flee in disdain, like Jonah, but to engage like Christ. Jesus loved us even when we were dead in our sin. When we turn and repent, we don't get to live as Jonah lived, disdaining those who weren't among God's people. We instead are called to live as Christ did. How did he live? If you didn't see it last week, Tim's sermon is on YouTube, and it is worth watching. He sent me a photo of him 10 years ago. He looked so young. And I said that, and he said that was about when we met. And I want to tell you that watching Tim be more and more controlled by the Spirit of God, desiring the things of God, has been one of the things that's given me the most hope about the power of God. Because that's not the same man who's sitting here 10 years later. I'm overjoyed at that fact. And if my wife can't tell you that there's been growth in me in the last 10 years, then I shouldn't ought to be standing up here telling you how wonderful Jesus is. And if you aren't more obedient today to what God has told you than you were 10 years ago, it's time for a gut check. What Tim preached from included a comment that Jesus made to his critics. He said, I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Who is that? The Father, the righteous judge, 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. This is beyond anything that Jonah's got any idea of. He's fighting a political battle, basically. He doesn't get it. We've got a perspective in Christ that he didn't have. In Christ, we get slavery from sin and death. We get a mission of seeking God's glory in a way we never could have. The power to live a life in obedience to Christ's word, not perfectly, but growing in grace. Where Jonah ran, Jesus instead came to rescue. And I know that some of you here don't really even know yet that God can say on the one hand that you are a sinner, and on the other hand still be extending to you mercy, undeserved favor. And I know some of you here think that even though God is utterly just, that he doesn't mind your sin because you do good things. And I know that some of you are struggling to find some of God's specific instructions to you from his word. You desperately want to find a way to ignore what you've been reading or to reinterpret it so it suits your desires. And wherever you are today, however you're hearing his word this morning, I want you to understand the perfect, holy God cannot stand in justice. He cannot tolerate any kind of sin. And yet, he has made a way for you and for me, sin machines though we are, to be allowed into his presence. And these two messages of Judgment of, on sin and mercy for sinners may sound like what I saw in Mammoth this week, snow and sand on the beach. But that's how God is. He doesn't moderate his justice in order to provide mercy. And he doesn't let up on his mercy in order to cover justice. He does them both perfectly. And only in Christ can we experience that reality. Because where Jonah ran, Jesus came to rescue.